Welcome back to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. I am Jackson. This is Warner. Hey, this is Carrie. Today we're going to continue our discussion on honor and shame. And especially we want to focus on the distinction between shame and guilt. Okay, so one of the books I have really loved is Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. It's written by Randy Richards and is it Brian? Brandon O'Brien. Brandon O'Brien. That's it. That's it. Okay, so in the book, they talk about language. And so, for example, in in America, we have multiple words for cars. We have trucks. We have station wagons. We have sports cars because cars are an important part of our culture. There's other cultures that are around snow all the time, and you know they have 100 words for snow. And so what their point is is that the language that we use emphasizes the values that we hold. So in this conversation, I guess my question is, is part of this just a, a lack of English language diversity? I mean, we kind of use shame. Maybe we would say embarrassment, but that's not exactly right. We lump a lot under the word shame and the word guilt. So anyway, I guess maybe, Jackson, you can speak to that. That's my question is, is this a language issue alone or is this a concept issue? What do we do with this? Yeah. You know, in the previous episode, we talked about a lot of half-truths concerning honor shame. And I think you are exactly right that when one word is meant to carry so much, there's only so much the mind is going to put into one into one idea. It's, it's too much. And so you also have related words would be disrespect, embarrassment, humiliation, disgraceful. But I mean, some of these are really strong words or really light words. Um, you know, dishonor sounds so formal. But I mean, those we do have those words, just a lot of them have kind of fallen out of fashion. Chinese, on the other hand, there are articles out there, scholarly articles by linguists and sociologists. You have 30, 40 different types of words that in, for example, the Chinese language that talk about different shades and different connotations of shame or mm-hmm. honor. You know, some of them are a little bit more moral in their connotation. They are only used when you're talking about some kind of a moral offense. Some of them are a little bit more like embarrassment. Some reference the inner feeling you have, whereas others talk about the external social experience of shame. And even there are some words where it can be used if it has a direct object and others you can't. I mean, it just breaks down to so many different specific facets. It really says something about the lived experience of the Chinese. And I know this is true also in in Thai and Japanese and Korean, where you don't only have words, but you also have uh, a lot of metaphors like losing face or giving somebody face, or you have these idioms that convey these lessons that use honor, shame language. So yeah, I think one of the reasons why we get confused about what honor, shame means and definitions is because we basically have one or two words that we don't even use the word honor and shame all that often. Mm -hmm. Jackson, can I jump in here? I'm just uh, looking here at Psalm 44, and I'm just going to read a few verses because it has multiple concepts and multiple words for honor, shame that come out of the Hebrew scriptures. So in verse 11 of Psalm 44, you have made us like sheep for slaughter. 
and have scattered us among the nations. That is a shame dynamic. They have lost their honor. Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle, right? Mm. That's a picture of shame. Like Mm. you're not worth anything. Um, Demanding no high price for them. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. Mm. Verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nation, a laughingstock among the peoples. Verse 15, this is the last one I'll, I'll read. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. I mean, they're just (laughs) piling on with the shame pictures, the shame words, the shame experience, social shame, psychological shame. It's uh, it's just a real profound expression of the multi multifaceted nature of shame that we see right there in Psalm forty four. Wow, right in the Bible that that is a honor shame poem. (laughs) There's so many words there. I think that of a lot of people, unless we they pointed out, they would kind of be surprised at how much of this language is here, because when people read the Bible, especially if they come from a Western tradition, the main problem that the Bible supposedly deals with is our guilt, and shame is just this other thing out there. So what is the difference between shame and guilt? And you know, before I give my two cents, when you guys hear people talk about shame and guilt, what do you what are your impressions? What are the things you hear people say when when that topic comes up? Yeah, the first thing I do is I point to and this comes from the book Guilt and Shame by June Tangney and it's a secular work of scholarship and she and her her co-writer point out that if you take a phrase, for example, I did that horrible thing, people with a guilt orientation will put the emphasis this way, I did that horrible thing. In other words, the guilt is on the behavior. The emphasis is on the action, the behavior. A shame-prone person, however, will say it this way, I did that horrible thing. Mm-hmm. So the the emphasis is not on the behavior of being wrong. The emphasis is on myself being subpar, wrong, defiled. There's something wrong with me fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that is a more pathological and more destructive emotion. Yeah. So I, I have a question actually on this is that I think that I have grown up here in America and I have really been taught to be allergic to shame. Mm. Keep shame Mm. at an arm's distance. Mm. There's nothing beneficial about it. (laughs) And so we're almost taught to separate ourselves. Like this is the thing I did, the action I did. And maybe I broke a law or I, yeah, broke the rules at school or whatever. And then we're taught push away the shame of that. We have tons of quotes. You are not your own mistakes. You know, mm. mistakes don't define you. And and so I guess I'm wondering what it is about the way we're, we're looking at guilt and shame that causes us to keep, sh- make sure we keep shame at an arm's distance. Is, 
is that a good thing? Is that, you know, there's, I, I, I guess I'm looking at it. We want to preserve our dignity. And so we push shame away and we keep it at the guilt conversation for ourselves. I think one reason why people in the West tend to be allergic to shame is somewhat based on this whole idea of a locus of control. That is, when you as an individual are supposed to be responsible for everything and you determine your own future, as soon as you experience some kind of shame or do something considered shameful or whatnot, all the responsibility is on you. And there's only so much you can do to overcome that because honor and shame is inherently a, a collective group dynamic. In traditional honor shame cultures, people recognize that events happen, circumstances happen for reasons beyond you as an individual. And so when there's a failure, something goes wrong, people see the whole community as having played some role in it, whether it be in a success or failure. Traditional honor shame cultures tend to say, well, they speak in the passive voice. Well, this happened or this is just how it worked out. And it kind of gets deflected because people realize, hey, there's only so much control that I have. And yeah. so there's a little bit of that going on. Jackson, I think that's a really great insight. I think really this idea that I as an individual and my autonomy to control things is just a delusion. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just not reflective of the way people actually live. Mm. In the Enlightenment uh, experiment, you know, the Enlightenment project, I think, therefore, I am, that my identity is rooted in my thinking and my autonomy is rooted in my thinking. I just think that is, that's, it's idolatrous to think that mm. way. And here's why. No successful individual experiences life in its fullness, in, you know, with success and flourishing and prosperity without support from parents, from friends, from educational institutions, a church community, a stable environment where they can grow and flourish. I mean, this is just, I think, a real imbalance in the way Western individualism has been taken to an extreme. And in that sense, a culture where a community where the the so-called shame is distributed, mm. it actually ends up giving more hope to the individual, mm. ironically, because they know it's not all their fault. You know, yeah. the community contributed to this. It's just a strange dynamic. You, you, you spurred a couple of thoughts here. One's honor or shame is really tied to one's community. And so when you do already, like in the West, there's a sense of alienation where people are, their identity is not in a set, certain group. It's like this part of my life is is in that group. This part of my life is in the work group or, you know, we're kind of fragmented, our, our sense of identity. That when you do experience shame, you don't have the community there to restore you to say, hey, no, you do have worth. You do have value. This is your role and contribution. So it's a lot harder to recover mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. those experiences of, of shame. Yeah, and I would add that there are many traditional communities where they have ceremonies where these restoration practices 
can actually make it easier for mm -hmm. people who were excluded to then be restored. Yeah. Individuals, cultures, you don't get as much of that. I think of an example of my son, when we came to the United States, he wanted to play basketball and he worked really hard and he played basketball in China and was, it was good and play and, and was successful, but he came here and he went to a, a very high level school and he was just outside of the varsity team and got cut. Now, because honor and shame are so linked to one's identity, it would have been very easy for him to feel like a failure, feel shame for not being good enough, whatever. But the truth is one of the things that I had to remind him is that he did not grow up in, in a sports culture where you go to uh, these various clubs and you have these private coaches and all these sorts of things like some of these other people did. Mm -hmm. These other kids' success is in part due to also their background, the amount of time that was invested in them. And there's, there's certain limitations and not to mention, you know, genetics. There's different factors that he has to take in consideration so he doesn't feel ashamed that he quote unquote wasn't good enough to make the varsity team. And in fact, there was another dynamic that at their school, they have certain rules about who can be on the varsity versus the JV. Like he would have qualified to become beyond the university, but they have rules about what grade you have to be in because of the level athletes they have that anyhow, in other words, he would have normally any other school made the JV team, but instead he got cut entirely from all basketball teams because they had this very particular rule. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that right there is something that where he could have felt ashamed, but if he'd gone to another school, he would have made it. He would have felt proud, honored, you know, had a status as an athlete, so forth and so on. But again, it goes back to this whole idea of we are not merely who we who we are as individuals, but we are, our identities are who we are within groups. And that is going to affect our sense of what is honorable and what is we consider shameful. I can just throw in a, uh, a book recommendation. Susan Eastman wrote a book called Paul and the Person. And there's one line from that book that really emphasizes the point we're making here. She writes that individuality presupposes relationality. Hmm. And in the West, we tend to think it's the other way around. It's a great quote, but just unpack it. Just unpack a that bit. a little bit. So, so we think that if you're going to be, for example, be part of a, a good church group, let's put it into the Christian context. First of all, you've got to have a strong individual relationship with God. And then you show up at church and you serve, and you, therefore, are going to be effective in serving. If we turn that around, what Susan Eastman has explored is this idea that our health, spiritually, physically, and otherwise, begins with our relationality. Mm. And because of our the health of our relationality, we become successful, flourishing, healthy individuals. Mm. Yeah. And it's precisely that relationality, being in relation with others, inherently opens us up to these experiences of shame or of experiencing honor. I want to just identify a few of the common ways that people distinguish guilt and shame. And what we've been touching on is this distinction between the self and the actions. Mm -hmm. I am bad versus I did bad. I actually have a quick question that I think will help, will lead us into this conversation. As I'm hearing you guys talk about the differences between guilt and shame, it almost feels as if guilt is 
personal only. So I guess I'm I'm asking what part of guilt is communal? You know, like we're we're asked in scripture to confess to one another. And so why confess to one another if guilt is not about community? Well, I think guilt can be about community, for mm-hmm. sure. I grew up in a German family. My parents came to the United States after World War II. My father, just so happens, was drafted into the German army and uh, was a POW for four and a half years in Poland after World War II ended. So I grew up with an awareness that something really horrible happened in Germany. Right. You know, And when I went to school, I learned about the Holocaust and the horrors of what the German nation did to the Jews and other minorities. And so there was this sense of German uh, guilt, or some people refer to it as German collective guilt. Hmm. And this is a real thing that not only affects the people who were alive during World War II, but affects the descendants of the Germans who were alive during World War II. Mm -hmm. And I I can attest that my cousins and I have explored some of these things and have explored whether there's some, you know, even transgenerational trauma from this. You know, so the guilt, the collective guilt is a real phenomenon, at least in this respect that I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about German collective guilt. Uh, I'm also reminded of like in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters two and three, John is writing to these different churches. You know, Jesus is speaking through John to these different churches, and he's speaking to them collectively about their various uh, failures and shortcomings. Yeah. And so, certainly, there is a sense of collective guilt that's represented in Scripture. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. One of the other common ways that scholars distinguish guilt from shame is that guilt requires a person to feel some sense of responsibility, whereas shame is is more about self-evaluation, feeling inadequate, not measuring up. Those are a bit different. With all of these broad characterizations, there's it's there's mostly true, but there's going to be some exceptions. That's why we said in our previous podcast that when we try to define honor, shame, and honor shame cultures, we're looking at a cluster of characteristics. Some other scholars have said guilt is when you overtly do something wrong, you're doing some wrongdoing, whereas shame is lacking in some virtue. It's a, there's an omission there. So that's another way people have thought about it. Whereas others have said, well, guilt is about moral failings, whereas shame is about both moral and non-moral faults. 
So these are just some of the the most common ways that people try to distinguish them. And, and there's some truth in them, but none of these work in every single instance. Mm -hmm. Again, you just see certain themes. Carrie, you mentioned something about the Catholic Church, I think, before. Yeah, it was. Well, it got me really thinking about at you know, at what point in history in the West did we really start to hone in on this idea of guilt, innocence as being the driving force in the way the church talks about sin? And, you know, I I got to thinking that was it, you know, back centuries ago when the Catholic Church was selling indulgences and people were coming and absolving their guilt in a very practical way. And the church was asking that of them as well. Like it was very transactional. You did this. We will forgive you. And so there was there was a relational component, right? But it was transactional. And so I don't know. I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Have you read up on where you feel like guilt and innocence really took a foothold in the way that the Western church looks at sin? Well, I think there's... Again, we're, we have to be clear with our terms that the church has always emphasized the importance of guilt as a culpability, sin as transgressing God's standards, whatnot. But there has not always been the seemingly exclusive emphasis on the feeling of guilt as opposed to shame. You, know, you have things like where Job's uh, talks about being in disgrace and he'd rather just not live rather than to suffer disgrace. I mean, that was something of, of greater prominence. And I would actually argue that what people call Catholic guilt is really Catholic shame because basically the idea was you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And what was being communicated is you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. And that's really about who I would say what we call Catholic guilt is actually more Catholic shame. Mm. So far, we've laid out sort of some of the most basic common things that you'll find in books that distinguish guilt and shame. I want to mention a few really interesting features that people have talked about in distinguishing shame from guilt. I want to get your thoughts on this. Shame is contagious. You think about it, like if you're around people, you associate with people mm. that are seen as kind of social outcasts, marginalized, scandalous, whatever else, and you're around them, it's like you can catch their shame. Mm. Whereas we don't tend to say, well, this person did something wrong, therefore you're guilty as well. Um, that's at least not the most common way, but it is super common to talk about being contagious. Greg Tenelshoff has a fantastic new book coming out called For Shame, coming out this summer. Here's a quote from his book. I'm going to get your response. Said He says, shame and its opposite, honor, are contagious. Guilt and its opposite, innocence, are not. We talk about guilt by association, but strictly speaking, there is no such thing as guilt by association. You cannot be guilty of something someone else has done merely by means of associating with them. Guilt and innocence are inherently individualistic. They accrue to individuals as a consequence for what they and only they have done or failed to do. Wow, that is powerful. Mm. That is a tremendous, tremendous insight. And the reason I think it's so helpful is... 
and I, and I'm thinking again about our evangelical tradition, uh, uh, theological tradition, is if we understand guilt this way, then it creates a kind of boundary around which we cannot transcend <laughs> to think as sin being outside of the boundary of guilt. Mm. And e even though in the Bible there are many examples of collective guilt, if or excuse me, we have collective sin. Let me put mm -hmm. it that way. If, if there are many examples of collective sin in the Bible, and there are, then if sin is only expressed as a guilt dynamic, then by definition, we are blind. We have boundaries by which we cannot even consider shame and sin, mm -hmm. sin and shame. Yeah. And I wonder if it would be more helpful then, right? Because we tell our kids this all the time. You're guilty by association. Look, at, look out for who you're hanging around. Would it be more helpful actually is what we're talking about in that situation actually shame by association? Yeah, more of a status. Not like they are going to have the emotion of shame, but that people are going to look down on them, sort of devalue them, have lower status in people's eyes because of who they hang around with. Mm -hmm. And now, Keep in mind, one of the reasons why someone could experience a lowering of status, a, 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 a worsening of reputation, is because the people they hang around with do wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Someone's social status could be because of what they've done, that is mm -hmm. guilt, innocence, whatnot, or for more trivial things, you know, dressing bad, you know, bad jokes, whatever else. It could be for any number of reasons. So yes, there could be a moral dimension, but I think you're right. What they're really getting at is this status, reputation, this shame dynamic, mm -hmm. not the emotional kind that Brene Brown talks about, but the, the state being devalued. With shame, we have this contagious problem. It's a unique problem. And the, and the nature of a problem is going to determine the nature of a solution. And if you have a math problem, well, don't give me a baking recipe to try to solve it, right? Well, and the same holds for shame and guilt. In our theology, when we have exclusively defined the human problem in terms of guilt, our understanding of salvation is exclusively that in overcoming the guilt. But how do you fix the problem of being bad, of being shameful in the eyes of God, or being ashamed, being excluded? If, unless we distinguish understand the distinction between guilt and shame, we're going to have our time clearly articulating the solution as Christ achieves it, as, you know, in the mm -hmm. overcoming of shame uh, and the remedy. Yeah, I think that the number one thing, I think, to address this is, is a simple recognition that the Bible addresses the problem of shame. Mm. If we simply accept that, that the Bible addresses humanity's problem of shame. And you're not merely talking about their psychological whatnot. Correct. Correct. To be clear, you're talking about the state of being worthy of shame. Yeah. Shame in all of its dimensions. Gotcha. If the Bible addresses the problem of shame in all of its dimension then we will be able to see those things and things get reframed. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, 
you must be born again. In a guilt framework, we have to like invent things, you know, to make for that to make sense. Mm. But in a if we if we understand the that the Bible addresses the problem of shame, then the statement you must be born again takes on a lot more meaning. For example, we are being born into a new family. We have a new source of honor. We have a new ascribed honor in Christ, in the family of God. We're starting over. We, in a sense, have a new spiritual DNA. We have a new core identity. Yeah, you're getting at this use of metaphors in the Bible, and guilt is dependent on a particular metaphor, a criminal law-oriented metaphor. You've committed a crime. But when you bring in the idea of family, well, that's going to affect how you talk about sin and, it's, and salvation. Uh, think about impurity and uncleanness in the Bible, which is often related to sin and wrongdoing. Well, those are shame metaphors. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When, and, good. Yeah, I was just thinking of when Jesus is walking through the city and the leper falls at his feet, Luke 5, 12 to 14. And the, the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Right. If we understand that uncleanness is not only a metaphor for disease, but it's a metaphor for sin, Mm -hmm. then it opens up all kinds of doors for understanding Scripture, how the Gospels relate to the book of Leviticus and and Exodus and, and all the dynamics of clean and unclean, inclusion and exclusion. And it uh it helps us make sense of the drama and and uh, uh incredible work that Jesus does in mm. crossing social boundaries yeah you know it's ironic that oftentimes people think that those of us who talk about honor shame a lot say you're minimizing sin when actually i would suggest when you start thinking about the sin categories in the bible and the metaphors around it it's almost like you intensify the issue of sin, because think about one of the most common ways of talking about sin is impurity and contamination, pollution, which has this permanence stuck to it. Uh, uh, Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, talks about this. The metaphors that we use are going to have a big impact on our understanding of the problems we face in salvation and what Christ accomplishes. You think about when a fly goes into a soup, he says it ruins it. Where if I did something wrong, just merely this wrong, I can fix it and I can move on, right? But all of a sudden, you, you had this visceral sense of badness when you understand a lot of the way sin is defined in terms of these shame metaphors. Uh, it really, in which then ultimately glorifies Christ even more in overcoming it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and over and over, you see Christ approaching people who I think, Werner, you said they were living in a state of shame. I mean, whether it be because they had leprosy or because, you know, I think of like the hemorrhaging woman. I mean, these were people that knew they have no option of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and making something of themselves, which is, that just wasn't an option. And then Jesus sweeping in and coming with words of restoration and acts of physical healing. I mean, talk about good news, you know, talk about good news. And I think that's hard for us to understand. It is for me, I know, because I was told if I'm going to be president of the United States, I could just be it. I just had to work hard. Well, but when you look at 
ancient cultures, when you look at some more traditional cultures now, they could work hard and they wouldn't elevate their status at all because they're in a caste system or they're a minority and that's not an option for them. Yeah, and this really relates, Carrie, to many more people around the world who are not in middle-class cultures, who are victims of other people's sin or victims of structures of sin. And because of that, they're they're limited, they're excluded, they're oppressed. Mm -hmm. This links with multiple things I'm thinking (laughs) of here, that that defilement Mm. comes from our own acts of sin, but it, defilement can also come as a result of living in a broken world. Right. Or defilement can be a, a result of someone else's sin. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I was speaking on uh, the prodigal son, and I was speaking at a church and introducing uh, the story, preaching about it, and bringing out all the honor-shame dynamics in the prodigal son story. And showing how God restored the honor of his son and that salvation can be seen thus as restoring the honor of lost sons, Mm. right? After my time of of preaching in the church, there was a woman who came up to me after after the service. She was probably in her late 60s, -hmm. and she had a beautiful countenance. She's probably been walking with the Lord for decades. And she said to me, she said, Werner, thank you so much for your uh, sermon. She said, you know, I've never one time heard a message about shame. Wow. Until today. Hmm. And you know, when I was a little girl, something happened to me. And I've never been able to get rid of it. Mm, until today. Yeah. Mm. I surmise that she had been abused in some way, Mm -hmm. and she felt defiled by the sin of another. And because of that, a gospel salvation message that only addresses us as sinners who are, you know, who are agents of sin, that that kind of gospel leaves untouched Mm -hmm. these other arenas of our own lives where we are victims of living in a broken, polluted world. And I I just believe the gospel addresses every dimension of sin. getting away from us. So I want to just point out one more distinction and we don't have time to talk about it. We'll probably make a whole episode of it at some later point. But it is this issue, does shame have moral power? Because the constant impression is that guilt is about morality and shame is about moral and non-moral things. A couple of social psychologists, Tyronian Bruin, give a really detailed explanation, quote, why there is no ground for rewarding guilt are regarding guilt as more moral in any of these senses. And they talk about a variety of senses, okay? And when they go in to explain it, they say that guilt is actually 
you know, well correlated with a tendency to make up for wrongdoing. And that's obviously valuable. If you feel guilty, you go, hey, I'm aware of that. I want to make it up. But they point out that the, a sense of shame, a sense of being concerned for other people's opinions, other people's perceptions and your reputation and these sorts of things, a, a sense of right and wrong and good, you know, goodness and whatnot, that that actually helps people to avoid wrongdoing in the first place. Hmm. You think about someone who is shameless, they don't care what other people think. And so they don't really have much to inhibit them from doing wrong in the first place. They don't care about other relationships. Uh, they, they, uh, these researchers said guilt uh, tends to treat the symptoms of moral defects, whereas shame often focuses on the faults in our character that actually lead to the misdeeds. Mm. Okay, so there is this uh, fundamental moral dimension, uh, uh, moral contribution that shame makes is having a sense of shame. This, yeah, in the East, this Confucian sense of shame, where shame is something of your conscience, of uh, discerning what is what is good and, and healthy and right and whole. I really like that, Jackson, because it suggests to me that when we communicate the gospel as the answer or the ointment for our diseases that addresses both shame and guilt, mm -hmm. then it has the, a greater potential to actually transform our lives ethically. You, you've mentioned this before, Genesis 3.21. Uh, that's where the uh, father, what does he do with uh, Adam and Eve? He covers them. He covers them with animal skins, right. Yeah. So it's, it's quite profound because God is covering their nakedness. And we learned from Genesis 2, the last verse in that chapter, that they were naked and not ashamed. So the fact that now they're naked and they're aware of their shame, God is covering their shame, it, it suggests that God is doing something to address a fundamental problem of humanity, which is happens to be shame. Mm. We're going to close it out here and bring in a current event. Uh, you know, in recent you know months, recent years, there's been a lot more conversation about white guilt and a lot of race discussion in America. But I want to pose the question: Maybe it's not so much white guilt that people are feeling; maybe it's white shame. In light of what we've been saying about distinguishing guilt and shame, what is it? Is it white guilt, white shame, both, neither? What is it? What do you think, guys? Yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the answer I, is yes. yes <laughs> then the end. But I, I actually, Werner, wanted to punt this a little bit because you gave us a little teaser a second ago about your history and linked with what happened in World War II. I would love to hear you in the next just couple minutes unpack that a little bit for us because I feel like there's a lot there that we can learn from. When we think about white guilt or white shame, that relates to the dynamic known as white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And here in America, we have a historical record of white supremacy and slavery and Jim Crow and ongoing oppression. And 
Obviously, there's been progress over the many, many decades, but there are still many issues mm -hmm. uh, in broader culture, broader society, uh, in our political environment, and in the church. Right. The church remains the most segregated institution in American life. So the issue of white guilt, white shame, white supremacy, uh, these are real issues for the church to address. And for me personally, I've, I've been, you know, grappling with the German collective guilt dynamic, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that it's a long journey. Yeah. It's not something you, you know, go to a weekend seminar, talk about it for a little while, and everything is good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's a recognition there there's it's a long journey of recognizing how much harm has been done over the generations and it's a public conversation right is that right i think it should be a, co a public yeah. conversation yeah. i think there are many many resources for us to explore there's all kinds of books i've been reading on this subject for you know about three years numerous books uh, but well, could you tie it a little bit more to because you've spoken before about uh, the German guilt, and yet also from what I understand, this actually might be a good parallel because maybe it's German shame. I mean, yeah, I think it is German shame. Uh, it's a sense of being not enough. It's a sense of collective failure. It's a sense of a national sort of corporate sense that we failed. Mm. And obviously, the German failure in World War II was profound. What's so, so interesting about this is that it has to do with the question of what gave rise to the Third Reich in World War II. Mm. How did Hitler come to power? After the Versailles Treaty in 1917, I think it was, Germany was excluded from the international community. And they were given the burden of having to pay back uh, uh, for the atrocities of World War I. And as a nation, they simply could not do it. Mm -hmm. And their economy, their economy was in a shambles. And as a nation, they were shamed by the international community. Oh, wow. mm. yeah. And so yeah. what Hitler did is he tapped into the longing of the German people to regain their honor, mm. essentially yeah. make Germany great again. Mm. And this is how he came to power. And so it's, it's, uh, it, it reminds me of how shame and honor and honor competition and history really shapes, you know, the major events of our national and political lives. How this relates to white guilt and white shame. Wow. Uh, you know, there are historical events that we need to, you know, boldly look at. We need to be honest about it. Mm -hmm. I think that as Christians— we have the opportunity because of grace, because we have an honor surplus in Jesus Christ, we can more honestly 
open our eyes at the shameful things that have occurred in our own history. Mm. We don't have to look away because God gives us this eternal source of honor. And I like to say it gives us, you know, an honor surplus. It gives us this ethical margin where we can be more honest, more real, more transparent about the, these actual struggles in our own history. You know, I just pose, throw this out there. You know, there's one thing, it's good to feel a proper sense of shame, okay? And you should feel shamed over various sorts of atrocities and wrongdoings. But you point out something that the international community overreached after World War I to the point that the Germans couldn't do anything about it. They were... I mean, they, they were like, what else can we do? It's exactly right. And they made a decision at the end of World War II, which was at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. I think it was called the Marshall Plan. Mm. And they, the West, led by America, went in and rebuilt Germany. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'll, I'll say this delicately because I don't want to be misunderstood. Easily, I could. I want to make very precise points. On the one hand, I think about pre-World War war two that germans many of whom you know, were not the same people as in world war one like in other words they were trying to move on they were trying to rebuild lives they were trying to be better people whatever else and they just couldn't they struggled with poverty and whatever else and they experienced a, an exceeding amount of shame in the international community that it led gave rise to extremism and i wonder if in the minds of many whites in America, if they might feel so much shame by the broader population, you know, this, you know, like cancel culture, we've talked about that before, like just you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, that I wonder if there's a sense of overkill in some people's mind that they feel that, hey, I've never done this, I've, you know, I shouldn't feel this shame, and therefore that's, that, gives rise, that gives impetus to the rise of more white supremacy, even more and more and more and more, as a response. I'm not saying that they're right to feel this way, they shouldn't feel shame, just that in, as I've, you know, listened to these people talk, the thing that they keep saying is, hey, we are being shamed, we're being denied jobs, we're being this, and that's what they, I'm just saying, this is what they fe- seem to feel, this is the narrative that they seem to be saying, and there's a misconstrual shame, because there's another respect, there's a healthy place that whites can feel in terms of shame, okay? Uh, that is the shame of, I belong to a group of people with the capacity to commit these atrocities of the past. That's a healthy shame. That you know, this contagious shame we talked about. That you go, uh, you know, that you know, I have been a part of these people who who treat those people wrongly. I have had privileges because of the mistreatment of other people that other people have not had. And there, there's a proper sense that you go, I feel a sense of shame about that. I, I don't like that. Okay, but then it crosses a line that I think some people in the broader society miss here. And and going, they go from that healthy sense of shame to going, oh, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're bad, you're irredeemable, and that's where I think maybe fall into that problem with some of the Germans before World War II, where they just go, well, if I can't fix this problem, well, then it's me versus you, and we get more extremism. I don't know. It's just a. I'm just trying to get inside the mind of where shame is going, where this sense of shame is 
more constructive and where it's gone awry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not to belabor this point, but I think a lot of that happens when we see ourselves as individuals as a part, as opposed to a part of a collective, you know, this is our, my German history or my, the, our white history or whatever. We, we, then we have the ability to say, well, I didn't do it. So I'm not culpable and yeah. we separate ourselves. Yeah. And so that's, I think, where the tension is happening, especially in the race conversation in America. Mm-hmm. I think the African-American church is looking for some repentance from especially churches that are historically white, and they're not getting it. They're not getting those apologies or whatever. Yeah, they're not getting apologies. And a lot of it, I think, comes down to the individuals, the white individuals keep resting on, I personally didn't do it. Yes. So I think we keep talking past each other Absolutely. as as you know collective African American congregations and collective more white leaning congregations, knowing that there's mixes, you know, there's some congregations that are a little bit more diverse. But I think that that's why these conversations are so important because we keep miscommunicating on what we're looking for and what we're willing to give and and so I think that's I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, and because people don't understand shame, I think you're right. They hear you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And like, right. well, I'm not guilty. I've never actually owned a slave. I've never actually done this. But what right. they're actually feeling is a sense of shame and it they don't know what to do with it. And so right. then it gets you know, so it feels so heavy yeah. that you end up going to, you know, really negative responses. So, yeah, I want to point out just the word you mentioned just now, Carrie, conversation. Absolutely. Yep. There's no substitute for good listening. Yeah. There's no substitute for just hearing the story of someone who has, you know, suffered from being excluded or being looked down on or being spit upon or, yeah. you know, being called derogatory names for decades yeah. or uh, not having the privileges that other people take for granted mm-hmm. and just understanding, not trying to fix it, yeah. just listening, understanding and expressing empathy. And that goes a long ways to addressing shame. This is a great place to stop. Thank you guys for joining us on this episode of Doing Theology Thinking Mission. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating to subscribe to others about the podcast. Keep the conversation going.